I think sometimes parents get a little narcissistic in what good for the child actually means. And we assume that we know what's best for our child rather than tuning in to what our child actually would want from us. You know what you said, you're guaranteed to hurt your kids. Like all parents are going to do it. Let's just, let's just get over this idea of a perfect parent. Majority of my clients have a lack of loving relationship with themselves. There's that approach of everything's going to work out because we're doing the right thing. It's like, no, it's not. That's not the way it works. There is something outside of who I am in my body that exists that I can't put my finger on. Welcome to the In Search of More podcast. I am your host, Ellie Nash. Join me weekly on my quest for more, more from myself and more from this world. We'll see you on the other side. All right, here we are. Welcome, Faith. Welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Okay, so I'm sure you know the uh, last conversation we had, we got amazing feedback. You did as well. I did. I got a yes. lot of, I, it's interesting because um, anytime I speak, I kind of just like ask God to like flow through me. It's like one of those recovery things, like mm -hmm. before you share your story at a meeting, you're supposed to just ask to like carry the message. And every time I'm like, oh, I hope I said something good. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, it, and it usually works out. So I yeah. got a lot of good feedback. Yeah. Yeah. I got beautiful feedback from it. So um, here, we are, here we are again. And I just want to say is that last time, a number of people reached out to us and said, hey, how do we contact Faith? I'd love to have her as a therapist. She seemed amazing. And you're kind of booked up. I am. I am right. booked up. <laughs> so this is not a, uh, a pitch for new clients. No, not for myself. I have, I have an amazing team of therapists, and we do everything that we can to accommodate for new clients with them. If for some reason one of our therapists isn't trained or isn't the right fit or isn't the right specialty for somebody reaching out, we do try to refer them to the best possible fit and help them find somebody who we think would be right for them. Um, and it's one of my, like, if I could clone myself and see 10 more caseloads than I already see, I would, but I am limited in my availability. So but that's you yourself, your clinic. Yeah. My clinic has plenty of space. Yeah. Oh, I got um, you. Okay. I think it's also, it's, it's, everybody's coming for such a specific thing. And when they hear me speak, they feel so safe with me because it's like, you already know who you're getting, even though I'm very different as a therapist than in my, than how I speak. I'm much more clinical, obviously, but in therapy, they feel a connection and feel like they know me. And so I think the, the other therapists in my practice just aren't as well known, but are just as skilled. And that becomes difficult for people because it's like, well, I heard her speak. I know I'm safe. How do I know that this other person you're telling me is good is going to be safe for me to see also? But you're saying that, though. You're yeah. saying that these yeah. are people you know, people you trust. And people I, we staff with on a weekly basis, if not a daily basis on clients. We talk about all the cases where we work really as a team, which for me is the only way that I could be a therapist with such a population that we're dealing with really heavy trauma, addiction, people really suffering. So I can't do that alone. I have an amazing team to support me. I bring my cases to them. They bring their cases to me unless somebody doesn't want to be staffed, which we always, always respect. So Someone doesn't want to be? Doesn't want to be staffed. So therapists call it staffing when we talk about cases together and come oh, up understood. with ideas and make sure we're not missing anything or like we're hearing the conceptualization of the treatment plan for them appropriately. So cool. therapy lingo. Okay. So there's not a personal... Um business component to this, but you do want people reaching out to yeah. Lionhearted Counseling. Lionhearted Counseling. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So bring them on. <laughs> bring it on. We'll try and find the best fit for everybody. Awesome. So last time we spoke, we spoke about sex addiction primarily, sex mm -hmm. and love addiction. Uh, this time I thought to maybe broaden the um, conversation. There was a lot of value that myself and others got from it. So 
let's see where else we can go with it. So maybe one way of doing that would be, you know, broadly speaking, it could be now or in the past, just kind of general issues, maybe not even issues as much as, um, you know, sometimes the presenting issue is not the issue you see. Yes. And maybe some highlights of common denominators you see within the population of people coming to you for help and where you need to, what you need to move them through yeah. in order to, to help them. So maybe a top three would probably be good. And if we can go into to those. So for me, the thing that I always am looking for is the what's the deeper wounding uh, so what I see typically with a client coming in, rather they're presenting with sex addiction, drug addiction, relationship problems, um, they want to improve their relationship with their children. I'm always looking at what their relationship with themselves is like. And I would say majority of my clients have a lack of loving relationship with themselves. The idea of self-compassion or a lack of shame that I'm, I'm a whole valuable, complete person and I don't need to do anything to prove my worth or be perfect in order to be lovable or earn other people's approval or love. That to me is the thing that I hear across the board, almost every client underneath the surface of what they're presenting. Does anybody struggle with the idea that there is a relationship with themselves? Like it's an even, a, it's even a thing. <laughs> yes. So that's actually really common for neglect. So there's the types of abuse, right? I'm, a lot of our clients also experience severe and persistent trauma, relational trauma as a child, uh, continuation complex trauma because a system, an employer, a relative all kind of treat them the same lack of nurturing or abusive way. Um, PMLD has this definition of addiction or addiction of abuse that is anything less than nurturing. And I always say it's a pretty extreme definition mm -hmm. of abuse, right? Especially if somebody's been overtly abused in a more violating way, it's like, okay, so everybody's abused, but kind of, kind because of. there are lots of less than nurturing experiences. And what that is, is it's a violation to the person as a self that we deserve our, at our core. What we truly deserve is nurturing and care and support and that loving accountability or community. And when we're not receiving that, that that's abusive to the nature of a person because it's such a core thing that we need. So I think everyone can agree with that, that everyone has not been in situations where the people or has been in situations where the people around them have not been able to meet all their needs. Yep. And as an adult, there, we can take personal responsibility for that in the sense of we can pick up and go somewhere else. We can surround ourselves with different people. But as a child, hey, these are the people around me. Yeah. And they're not going to meet all my needs. <laughs> exactly. It's also, as a kid, I'm completely reliant on my parents. I have no choice. So, and there can't be that something's wrong with them. I internalize everything that's done. So if they're not meeting my needs, uh, even if it's an accident, then I'm going to feel like it's about me. And that can be interpreted as some really severe abusive messages. Like I'm not lovable. I'm not worthy. These core woundings that I'm talking about. This is so actually something that I had to get over when I realized I wanted to have kids was that it was inevitable that I'm going to hurt them, like the impact versus intent. I may intend to do everything in my child's best interest, but I'm going to impact them negatively. In some way, for sure. Some way. They're going to come to me years later and tell me, Mommy, when you did X, Y, and Z, it made me feel less than nurtured in some way. Right. And they're therapist kids, so they'll actually talk like that. But... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But with with that being said, I think it puts a lot of 
people under the idea that like, oh, wait, maybe something was hurtful for me that was abusive for me. And it, that's a hard thing to kind of wrap your head around because denial is like a warm blanket. So if they come in and I say like, well, that sounded that's that's less than nurturing. That sounds abusive. Somebody's going to say like, well, I wasn't abused and that defensiveness will come up. So um, and, and oftentimes they're defending their their parents in some for way. Sure. For sure. Right. I think if we can just get out of that way, get out of the way of that. Uh, that, you know, what you said, you're guaranteed to hurt your kids. Like, all parents are going to do it. Let's just, let's just get over this idea of a perfect parent. (laughs) It's not just that. It's that your parent, I I always say this to clients. I don't think anybody's clients are actually bad people, except for about a very small percentage of the population. There's like a 5% percentage of the population that are sociopathic and have children and severely harm their children. And I've met those clients. And I would never say, like, your your parents didn't mean to do that. No, they did. But 99% of my clients, their parents were not intending to harm them. They really, truly thought they had their best interest in mind, no matter how off that guidance right. actually was. Sometimes they were intending to do what they did. Yeah. They were intending to do what they did, but they didn't necessarily realize the level of impact. I think it's also the the belief is, even though I'm doing something, I'm doing something for their good, it's just, I think sometimes parents get a little narcissistic in what good for the child actually means. And we assume that we know what's best for our child rather than tuning in to what our child actually would want from us. Right. Or sometimes, you know, there's a, a podcast I like and listen to. It's called The Place We Find Ourselves with Adam Young. Mm-hmm. And he has a, usually when he covers a topic, he'll cover it in several episodes, like part one, two, and three. And he has one which he calls The Importance of Intentionality. Mm-hmm. And dealing with the people who harmed us, something like that, and like that, how often that can we can be so dismissive of the hurt we've experienced because we just say um, our parents meant their best. Not always, yeah, right. Not always meaning they they did actually intend to, let's say, put religion in before you. They did right. actually intend right. that. What they didn't intend is necessarily all of the consequences that would come from from it, and it could be that. Because of the way they were raised, they didn't really have other options that they knew of. So yeah. maybe you can say they were doing the best they could with what they had. But there is sometimes a level of intentionality that we have to be willing to acknowledge in order to say, okay, we were we were hurt. And we're not talking about the people who it would call wicked as people who, wicked or evil, as people who would malicious. take a certain pleasure right. yeah, in the someone else's pain. right. Right. There wasn't a pleasure they were getting from someone else's pain, but there was certainly with most people. But most of the time it was actually Right. I don't think I don't think any of there my clients doing... accidentally got hit with a belt or accidentally <laughs> right. got um beat or accidentally got locked out of the house in the cold. Like I don't think that was accidental. The parent was intentionally doing it, like you said. And I do I but the reason why the parent justifies it is usually for the child's good. And that's a that's that's a late stage recovery from trauma concept. Like that is a whole other can of worms that I think in the beginning of trauma recovery, people can try to bypass the painful part of that by saying my parents did the best they could with what they had instead of I was really harmed and I need to heal what was harmful before I start to understand and have compassion for exactly. their action. Right. Exactly. Um, so yeah. yeah, it's a nice idea, but after the, 
after first healing and Let's making remove right, the because the thing that happens with abuse, and I'll get back to neglect because this is how we got off on this tangent. Um, <laughs> mm. um, the thing with abuse is that we internalize it as being so personal. Like it, it's not that my parent was doing the best that I could. There was no voice inside of me as a child to stand up for me. My only source of being stood up for is from my parents. Those are my protectors, my guides, and my nurturers. So if they're not advocating for my best interest and they're telling me that it's my best interest to get hurt, I have nothing else to do but believe that. And so and in as an adult, healing from trauma, I have to become my own advocate for the voice that was never given during the abuse. And, and that inner child work is a big modality with that of like coming back and standing up for the part of me that it was not okay that that happened doesn't mean my parents are terrible people or I can never speak to them again unless that's necessary part of the healing. But um, it does mean that I need to have a voice and advocate for the younger part of me that never got protected or spoken up for. Right. So, the, yeah. Some of the way we got off on this tangent was in terms of the, like, the relationship one has yeah. with, with themselves. Self. Like we're actually treating ourselves in a certain way. I'm yeah. thinking of a conversation I had this morning of someone struggling with addiction for a number of years and... He's like, I'm not making any progress. I said, well, I see a lot of progress. I do. Mm -hmm. You do keep stumbling on the addiction side. I said, but you know what I see the most of is that every time you fall, you just decimate yourself over it. So if you can turn that into a half hour ordeal or even a day or two, you'd probably be fine. But every single time it happens and it's bound to happen, it turns into a couple month ordeal. And, you know, he was in that rut, obviously. So he's you know, beating himself up even more and you're just saying that for this and it's not true and you know, <laughs> all this stuff. And at some point I said, you know, you're treating yourself exactly like your father treated right. you growing up. Right. We end up re-abusing ourselves. Right. It's a, it's a very common thing. And I think even addiction becomes the abuser. It, it starts off as my way out of the abuse. It's my savior from this horribly difficult, painful situation I'm in, but it becomes the abuser. It takes the place of that, either through the thinking, the actions, the way I treat myself, the way I approach other people. I'm reaffirming all of those same beliefs in my addiction. And recovery, I think, happens when I'm not repeating the abuse, not when I put down the, the act or the substance. Right. In this case, as a child, he was abused by his father, put down by his father. As an adult, he's he being himself. abused by himself. Exactly. So the, the thing that's interesting, so the types of abuse that I usually see that have a more difficult time having a sense of self is neglect. And the big reason for that is there's nothing that's the, op there's nothing that's opposite of nothing, right? If I've been harmed and I've been hit, there's an opposite. There's kind touch. There's being gentle. There's um, practicing not being explosive with my anger or acting in rage towards my children. I know what the opposite could be, I have something to gauge it against. Um, so when there's overt abuse in the way of physical um, abuse, there's it's easier to know what the opposite to do. If I'm name called, I know the opposite of name calling. The opposite of nothing is kind of nothing. So if I was never seen as a kid, if I have this profound sense of emotional neglect, like I don't matter, I was never treated like I mattered, what I felt or what I, my thoughts, my opinions about the world were treated as unimportant and I was neglected on an emotional level, I don't know the opposite of having a sense of self. Right. So our sense of self is molded in, in the friction between other people. If I have no friction with somebody because there's neglect, I don't form a solid sense of self in my core. Right, I saw, I don't remember who it was, who said, 
trauma is not always what happened to us. Sometimes it's what didn't happen for us. Yeah, yeah. The 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 absence of an empathetic witness is a Pima Chodon. I don't know that's how you pronounce her name, but um, what name did you say? Pima Chodon Chodon C H A R D O N Pima. I never pronounce her last name right, but she's brilliant. Um, and she talks about the absence of an empathetic witness, like that trauma is not what happened to us. It's what happened alone for us. So in the absence of any kind of intervention, negative or positive, I just believe that this is my only truth or reality. Got it. Okay. So that's the problem. That's the problem. What's the solution? <laughs> so how do you become a person? <laughs> yeah. When someone's coming to you, they're coming yeah. to you to, for help. Yeah. The, the, the idea of a self is part of that first conceptualization is that like I'm a person who has a right to exist in the world in a healthy way. So that's a, that's a really tough one because what is that going to conflict with in my family or my community or with my own core beliefs about myself? So a lot of the things in the beginning that I see to shift that is like what I call the basics, which is not the same basics as 12 step, but the therapy basics, which is like writing out things that I know are true about me writing out what my beliefs are about myself, doing what in 12-step I think would be considered like a moral inventory. It's like that fourth step, but we kind of do it in a different therapy-ish type way where we talk about it a lot more. Um, so when you, when someone is doing this in the therapy setting, it's both the good and the bad? Yeah. Oh, so they're, what is but true about the, myself? The truths are not about judgment. It's just getting a sense of like, who am I as a person? A lot of my clients also are so in the fog of whatever they're experiencing, whether it's trauma, family conflict, addiction, um, they're, they're numb or fogged out from everything that they're doing that it's like, I don't even know where I am or who I am because I'm so busy in the, in the dysfunction that I can't get a sense of myself. So in the therapy room, and I'm speaking mostly about intensives. I do a lot of intensive work where the sessions are longer. It's over a few days and we have time to kind of sink in because I think in an hour therapy session, it's so easy to just go back out into all the dysfunction or numbing or dissociative behaviors in this. It's like being very present with like, let me get to know myself for what I actually know about myself. And then let's see what's true and what is contrived and what is adaptive as a way to like build relationship and, and start to understand why it is I do the things I do. Because maybe I'm doing things by rote that I didn't choose to do. Would another uh, word for this maybe be identity work? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it is identity work. It's identifying the self. Who am I? I I also, I use a framework that is similar, kind of like an IFS parts work, where we'll do a personality map. And the idea, the, the central idea behind it is that there is a part of ourselves, like the true self, that we never actually know. I mean, unless we're doing psychedelics <laughs> um, or like really intense breath work, I guess. So like you even get then to it this, gets even, even then it gets confusing. Even then it's confusing, right? <laughs> yes. Because this idea of this of a true self that is not knowable as a human, because there is something whether whether we believe in God or somebody's atheist or agnostic, whatever it is, there is something outside of who I am in my body that exists that I can't put my finger on, and. I, I may have used this analogy last time we talked, but I can't remember. But uh, the idea that if I'm looking at this glass of water, I'm not the glass of water. I'm the person looking at it, right? That observing mind idea. And so if I'm not my thoughts and I'm not the person thinking about the myself and who I am as myself, then which part of me is that? And that is what we would consider in 
in this practice a true self, the part that sees all of it, everything, that knows everything, that feels everything, and makes all the decisions about everything behind the scenes. And then our personality is developed out of that. In order to access this, this idea of a true self, does someone need to adopt a spiritual worldview? Is that necessary? No, I don't think so. Um, I haven't seen it be problematic for my clients that still identify as agnostic or atheist because what we're talking about is like my character as a person, how I interact with other people as well. I think it's, I think there's something for me as a person who does have a higher power that I find very comforting in having that. And for my, my clients that don't identify with that higher power work, it, it is just this idea of like the universe happens, like the sun rises and the moon sets, not because I'm doing anything to make it happen. It just is the way the world works and that this, this is kind of seen as a power greater than me because it's not me who's responsible for the earth's gravity. You know, just the scientific sort of understanding that I'm not the most important thing is still enough to do this type of self-work because we also, as a person, need to understand that like we're not, there's a God or a, something bigger than us and we're probably not it. Like I do think that's a crucial component in doing self-work. So then that is a little bit of a spiritual worldview. Yeah. I don't know. You tell, I'm not atheist. So (laughs) tell an atheist that I don't know if they would agree. Right. But like the funny thing about atheism is like, and to believe there's no God means I, there must be a God type of thing. Like it contradicts itself in some forms, but I do have clients that are very, um, that don't identify with spiritual practice in any way. And that don't identify with this, um, spiritual religious, form of an idea of God that connect with this idea because of the understanding of nature and science and that. So that there is something. I mean, I I see it with my children, for example. I have three children, and there is who they are and who they were kind of before we got our hands on them. (laughs) There's a personality that's there, more than a personality. There's an essence that's there, and it's very, very different one to the next yeah over time yes because we're we're humans we start you know moving people in a certain direction but there is that that essence i think this goes into it as a therapist i can't have an opinion on somebody's spirituality right like it's not my job to influence somebody's spirituality if i see an opening to discuss their beliefs i'm going to take it because i think that's the the juice like (laughs) you know i think that's like Again, if if we're dealing, if most of my clients are dealing with addictive disorders, specifically sex addiction, which is typically what my clients are coming to me with, the that's a wounding to the spirit. So I want to get to the spiritual healing part of this. It's just mm-hmm. I can't be suggestive because it's not it's not ethical as a therapist to import, impart my opinion or belief on someone. That being said, if if I see the opening and they're game to talk about it, I'm going to go for it because right, it's so hard not to because it's. It's like a worldview. Like I believe that everyone has an opinion of God. Mm-hmm. And what I believe that to be is kind of ha- how the world works, right? Like gravity is an opinion of God. Right. That something goes down. Uh, randomness is an opinion of God. Causality is an opinion of God. Mm-hmm. Is an opinion of who God is. Right. So meaning whatever rules we believe or lack of rules we believe are happening here that is that is an opinion and that's worth worth exploring god is a tough word that's all exactly that's what i was going to say like everything that you're talking about 
could be talked about without talking about God, but it, 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 I think it takes somebody who's done a lot of healing work to feel comfortable with it, calling it God, because a lot of times God is not that. It's whatever I was taught God was, or the thing that hurt me, or the thing that betrayed me, or the reason why I'm not good enough is God. Not the reason why the universe is supporting me by creating oxygen right now. <laughs> That's right. not God. And so learning how to attribute more in a more healthy way what God really is versus what I was shown or taught God was supposed to be. Right. And that's always rough. I know for myself, I didn't want them to be right. Them being... Yeah. The oh. Jews. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, not that. By them, I mean the people who I disagreed with mm-hmm. and the way I was raised. I didn't want them to be right. So I was throwing the baby out with the bathwater right. to, to some degree. It well, was so and- important for me that they're wrong because they were wrong they were wrong wrong. right that's what i'm saying like the people are wrong when they do something harmful to another person in the name of god but that's not god i mean maybe it is if you want to get really deep with it (laughs) right i was actually talking about this this is actually an interesting concept i'll see what you think about it the idea that um i had a sponsor who would we would talk about like the prayer to relieve my character defects that seven step prayer Mm -hmm. humbly ask god to remove our shortcomings yeah humbly ask god to remove our shortcomings and the idea that like the humbly asking God means I don't get to decide when my shortcomings are removed because I was like praying and I'm like, I'm still an asshole. Like, what? <laughs> I remember, I remember it specifically. And for those of you who are not in 12 step, I'll try to make this as general, but in a, in 12 step, you're supposed to pick a group that's like your home group. And the idea is to do service to that group because it's a peer run fellowship. It doesn't work unless members are volunteering. And so I was in a voluntary position and I was trying to manipulate my way out of one of my agreements and I guilt tripped somebody into taking my commitment <laughs> because at the time my dad was dying of cancer. I totally used the, di- the dying dad card and like <laughs> manipulated my way out of my service commitment and like, could there be validity in it? We could be compassionate with me about it. Sure. But the reality is, is I knew what I was doing and I was using a shortcoming and it was intentional. It was intentional. (laughs) Yes. I I wanted, I did not want to have to do the thing I said I would do. So I'll guilt somebody else into doing it for me. And that I called my sponsor about it and I felt awful because I'm hyper aware of my shortcomings at this point. And I know that's a dick move. And like, I should have just followed through with my (laughs) commitment and all that. Like, and I ended up, um, she, she started to talk to me about this idea that like, you don't get to decide what God's timing is for the removal of your shortcomings because it's, you never know when your shortcoming might be somebody else's path towards enlightenment. Hmm. So the idea that we don't get to control the universe, basically, that I might be still acting out on a defective character because it benefits somebody else's path and I don't get to control or know that. And this very deep, at the time, I was like, well, that's stupid because like, he's using me as a guinea pig. <laughs> he, he's making me suffer. He's making me cause other people pain in order to, and I, I took it as a very literal human interpretation, but she was talking about something much, much deeper and much more nuanced than what that is, which is just basically that I'm, I'm only in surrender to the flow of what's happening. I have free choice, but at the end of the day, there are things that will happen that are outside of my control and I'm not the one who decides when my shortcomings go away. So the, the depth of surrender that I had to practice that I'm not always, I'm not going to be perfect and I'm not going to be able to the one who chooses when I make the world. Right. In order to believe that, do we have to go as far as justifying um, taking our character defect and putting it on somewhere else, on someone else. Meaning, let's say there's, 
I don't know, I'm trying to think. So within me, right? So there's this rageful part of me. Mm -hmm. So there's two parts to that rageful part, the feeling of it and the acting of it. Right. So humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings. Be okay. God is not ready to remove the feeling of it right. from me, but the acting of it, like that's the choice. I mean, it's not for sure. You know, we can believe everything, what you're saying. I can totally believe it without having to go to the extra step of what it sounds like of justifying someone else having to, oh, this is for well, their benefit. I ended up to finish that story. I ended up having to call the guy immediately back that I guilted and taking back my commitment. So, <laughs> right. so I still had to have accountability. I still had to go to the service commitment that I agreed to go to because oh, after it. talking to my, I, I immediately felt, I knew what I did in the moment. I called my sponsor immediately and told her about it and like spoke about it. And she was like, well, sounds like, gotta, take amends. sounds <laughs> like you got to go take a, take responsibility for yourself. If you did it intentionally correct it. Right. And, and so, and, and the I, character defect is not necessarily removed at that point. No, but Taking accountability for but me as a human, I can still be responsible and accountable for when I've done something harmful to somebody 100%. else. So I don't think that God ever excuses us from being accountable for who we are as people. That's spiritual bypassing. Like, oh, it's all good. You know, it was for the greater good that right. that that I ripped that guy off. No, like <laughs> um, it's for his benefit. In yeah, fact. <laughs> I'm helping him. Like at that point, I'm a sociopath, right? Like gotcha. I'm justifying harming others. So it's not to justify harming others. It's to understand the compassion that who I am is imperfect for the good of, of the universe or whatever God has in store for me. Right. But that doesn't free me up to hurt someone or, or to not take accountability exactly. for, for when I did. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm good with that. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> okay. I'm agreed with yes. validation. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> huge, huge, huge. No, um, go ahead. I think we just, we kind of touched on one of maybe three areas. Is it that fear? Is there, yeah, because it is a big topic. It's a huge topic. So the sense of self, the other piece that I think goes with sense of self is all the ways we we try to seek outside of ourselves and how that negatively impacts our perception of the world. Right. And I think this is addiction 101 is there's something wrong inside of me. I look for something outside of myself to make me OK. A lot of my clients come in, they're doing a lot of behaviors that either justified or they're feeling shame about. I think I see more often the problems with the justified behaviors, like the idea that like I'm working 12 hours a day at the expense of a relationship with my wife because we, we need money even though we're extremely well off, right? Like at that point, at some point, there's a tipping point where it goes from working hard to work addiction and that workaholism piece. And that is a very justified component. The, the desire for material objects, which I have a circle plan around shopping, so I'm not bashing <laughs> material objects. I think it's nice. Um, but there's one of my, when am I using it in an unhealthy way versus one is it um, just an aspect of me expressing myself and appropriate for my life situation. So the, the thing that I hear a lot for people coming in is such a deep justification and rationalization of their unhealthy coping mechanisms that there has to be a lot of confrontation of like, you're wrong, <laughs> right? <laughs> like the way you're thinking about the world is not right. Um, and you feel like what underlies that is seeking external validation yeah. very often. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure. I think just in the world at large, there's a ton of pressure. I'm not okay until you tell me I'm okay. Yeah, until I have the same thing that every other Instagram person has or TikToker has, or if I have the car that everybody thinks is okay, or I'm 
I think there's also like, it's interesting science, like there's bell curves, right? We have a bell curve. There's this research about anger and how hot it is outside, right? This is one of those classic, if you did research methods in college, you learn about this study. Mm -hmm. And basically there's a bell curve of it being so hot that people get more angry or um, identify as being more irritable or rageful when it's hot. And then it peaks and it gets so hot that they have to go seek shelter and so there's a decrease in anger violence or criminal activity so the, there's this bell curve okay. thing in science that typically occurs right and i think there's a bell curve that people it's very hard to get to with external validation there should get to a bell curve of like it's so uncomfortable to seek so much external validation that i no longer want anybody to notice me but that doesn't really happen with humans because we're so commercialized or we have so much of this consumer push and we live so much by judging my insides by other people's outsides that we're, we just seek and seek and seek more and more and more, whatever that may be, money, wealth, fame, love, female attention, male attention, like it goes on and on. And, and to the point where it's my kids don't matter to me because they bring me no joy. And the intimate time with my wife is just a drag because it's not as exciting as being at the club with a bunch of people or husband. I, you know, I must be <laughs> um, being out in community in a meaningful conversation with somebody. I can't stop thinking about the more exciting or intense thing that I can go do. And so there's not this bell curve where we drop off in this external validation seeking. And that's problematic because the, the, the way I would think about it is like the foot is on the gas and we don't even realize that there's no more gas in the car and we're still trying to rev the engine and not getting anywhere. Right, so it's not it's not hitting the spot, the validation we're getting. Otherwise, we would stop. Right. And we assume that the reason for that is that we just haven't got enough yet. Right. So the, so right. we keep seeking. Yeah, I would say that most of the sex addicts I've encountered, like that was a big part of the drive, was certainly when it came to the serial dating. Mm -hmm. um, Picking up, you know, and it goes both ways, women to men, men to yeah. women. That when it was that aspect of it versus more of the maybe transactional components of mm -hmm. um, the addiction, whether it's pornography or calling, a, you know, a sex hotline or a prostitute, those maybe not as much. But when it's the people, what was lying underneath it was just needing that that validation, yeah. that hit from someone else that I am, I am okay. And you're saying you never see it. Top off. Never. So why do they come to you? They come to you for something else. Something and then you else. Pick up, they right. don't understand that that's part of the problem. Oh, my relationship is in tatters, yeah. for example. Yeah. And they come to you. And if, if my partner would just lay off of me about being home more, then it would be okay. Right. <laughs> right. It's this addictive thinking where we get stuck in the deluded thoughts that we have to just, we justify our behavior, not seeing what the actual problem is. And I, I think every human suffers the, the issue of being inside of ourselves. We don't see ourselves accurately inside of ourselves. And we speak to ourselves in our own voice in our head. And so then we end up believing outrageous things that are so not what make us happy. And we don't understand why we're miserable. But it's because of these very obvious things to everyone else. And that usually is what leads somebody into therapy. Or they're, they're, they're depressed, they're suicidal, they're experiencing burnout um their their friends all are sick of their their shit you know like and are saying like you need to get help right and there was something you said and i want to know if it's the same thing or mm -hmm. um, maybe tease it apart a little bit 
One is the external validation. You've also mentioned the word, you know, intensity a couple of times. Mm -hmm. That it's not as intense to uh, for one to be intimate with their spouse versus go to a club and, you know, yeah, meet someone so new. It just doesn't have the same. We can use external validation to create internal intensity. So the what I would the way I would separate those two is external validation is what I'm doing or seeking or the this want for something outside of me to make me okay. Whereas the intensity is how I feel when I'm in this pursuit and when I'm getting it. Does that it's one's nervous system right. and one's action. So you're, but they're connected. But they're connected. Very, very connected. Very connected, yeah. So oftentimes the kind of external validation that one needs has a level of intensity right. in order to kind of quiet the, the noise temporarily. Exactly. And what you're saying is that this issue is so huge that it underlies a lot of different problems. Yeah. And it can manifest itself in relationship issues, in addiction, and other and other kind of challenges in one's life. But when you're looking at it at its core, it's someone seeking validation from something external. Yeah, I think we also, if you talk about that idea of like grass is greener, right? The grass is, we always think the grass is greener on the other side. That's, to me, I'm hearing a form of external validation. If I had the green grass, then I would be happier, right? It's about the right. getting something and thinking it's going to create a desired result. And I think if we talk about most people having an addictive disorder nowadays, that's the addiction. It's not about I, like that. That's the thing I see most is that we are so conditioned to look outside of ourselves as a community, as a society. Like it's really overwhelming to me to think about the amount of people that spend their day looking at everyone, what everyone else is doing, wondering if they're good enough. When you say so conditioned, you're connecting that to, to maybe the consumerism? Yeah, consumerism, social media. I mean, like, I'm, again, I have some limited social media, so I'm part of the problem. I'm not, it's more of how do I learn to interact with the problem that we're seeing? It's consumerism, it's social media, it's um, But you're doing something different sites. on social media. You're sharing ideas. You're not sharing the handbag. You so that's, I had a really intentional conversation when I decided to use social media for my business of what I wanted to create because I, did, I couldn't, get in line with the consumerism aspect. It's very hard for me. Like I want to be helpful and I would like to make money, but I would not like to manipulate other people into thinking I can do something for them to make money off of them. Does that make sense? Say that again. Yeah. I don't want to manipulate somebody else into thinking I can help them to make money off of them in order to make money off of them. So I think what I see in some marketing that makes me cringy is that I'm going to, I know offering services and product is part of like, that's what we need. Right. I need, if I need a haircut, I'm going to, I wear mm -hmm. a shade but you know, like <laughs> if I need a service, I'm going to go look for somebody that provides that service and marketing is an avenue towards me finding the person that provides that service. hundred percent. But there's something that feels uncomfortable for me with that with mental health, because it feels like I'm preying on people's vulnerabilities if I'm marketing in a more like, I'm the one who's going to help you type of way. So how do you get around that? I just share ideas. Just ideas. Just value content. So there's like, if in social media, my marketers explain this all to me, like the different types of content that you can produce and the different, different frameworks to get people to engage or pay for things or buy things. A lot of it is just value. I just, whatever I can say that's valuable, helpful, insightful, 
um, allows people to feel like they're being, they're getting something positive from whatever we're putting out there. So I, that's the only way I can wrap my head around doing social media and not being part of the problem. Right. I'm thinking of a conference I once went to and the distinct feeling I was getting from the person leading the conference who shall remain unnamed was that without him and his instruction and his pathway, I am screwed. And so is everybody else in that, the room. That, that was the yeah. that was the message. It was very salesy and very heavy. There was good content as well. And right. I got something from it. But it it almost felt like, okay, you see how good this is? Your relationship is doomed if you don't come right. to my relationship workshop. Your right. business is doomed if you don't come to my right. business workshop. So you're saying that's what you want to stay away from. It's just Yeah, any kind of fear-based marketing, something where I'm making somebody feel like there is something wrong with them or they're insecure in some way and need my help because that feels dependent and gross <laughs> to me. Understood. There's a, and, and I think there's a lot of, and that's, I'm vulnerable to that. You know, if I'm scrolling to, through social media because I've got curious about looking at something and I'm using my business account because I don't have a personal to look through, I notice where I'm like, oh, oh, that is a really great blush. Maybe mm -hmm. I need to buy it. You know, <laughs> like I, I'm vulnerable because all of a sudden I'm thinking maybe something I have isn't good enough or there's something new out there that I didn't know about. And now I'm not and now I'm going to be left behind. And like it's emotional because we're we're humans that are driven by connection. So marketing can play on you're not worthy of being connected to if you don't do X, Y and Z that I'm now profiting off of. Right. And 95 percent of the time you may see this advertisement. You may just scroll past it, but yeah. in those 5% of vulnerability, it can be. Exactly. Hey, you hit me. Okay. Also, if I see it 25 times, which is why influencer <laughs> marketing is brilliant, right? Because in working is because you see it, everybody has it, and it creates this sense that maybe I don't. Mm. And maybe in order to be part of, because we're tribal, we are made to be in relationship. So it only makes sense that we're going to want to be relational. It's are we using people's desire for relationship for their good or for our benefit? And that's, that's the big thing I always try to focus on is, am I doing this for somebody else's well-being or am I doing this for my well-being? And, and I think there's times where it's both because I'm a human who has needs. I'm not needless. Every human has their own needs. But if I'm not also doing it with the mind of how is this providing help to somebody else, then I think I'm treading in dangerous territory for myself. Right. When we use the word validation, it's quite strong because it suggests that we don't feel, we feel invalid until this this happens. It's not like, hey, that would be cool to have that car. Right. No, it's I, I'm literally not as much of a human who's worthy of other human connection if I don't have that car. Okay. So I understand the problem. I understand how it could manifest itself in a lot of different areas of life. What's the What's solution? What's the solution? <laughs> <laughs> um, this is where I think taking some abstinence is always important. Looking at like going on like a uh, getting really honest about what am I doing and how do I change those behaviors. Now in old like TC, which is therapeutic communities, that's the old addiction model of treatment. They would like, you know, make you only wear like Walmart clothes if you're really big into fashion or they would, you know, you're not allowed to wear makeup for 30 days until you don't feel like you need to wear makeup. They would do those like opposite assignments. Um, and now I don't go that extreme with my clients. I will say like, let's look at, if is that like Tanya Iskafia and Ishabcha? Like hold oh, back maybe, from something? Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> the, a the lot opposite. of this, even the true self thing is Nishama stuff. It's talking about like the soul and all the barriers that we have towards being human and all that. Like all of this, I go off on a whole nother tangent here, by the way, but the idea, all of this is at, at some level, a uh, one truth 
And so there's a lot of, even if we look along different self-help books and different people coming out with different information and research and all the names, you know, Vanderkoek and Brene Brown and Gabor Mate and all these, there's, there's the people who are talking about truth are all talking kind of about the same thing, which is the same thing that Tanya is talking about. I just wish it was worded for my clients who are a little triggered by trauma <laughs> from religious upbringing. Because when I read Tanya, not growing up religious, I'm like, yes, this is all, yeah, <laughs> like this is the jam. <laughs> There's some of it that I'm like, that's a little, that's a little harsh there, Alta Rebbe, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, um, but at the same time, most of it I can back and, and compare to a psychological concept. And I know that I have clients that when they read it, they're like, this is, I, I want to throw up. It's so traumatizing. I just hear my, my rebbies who abused me. All right, so let, let's talk about that because that's, that's actually fascinating, right? Because if you think about this rebbie who was instructing this person or the parents who sent this person as a child to this rebbie, their intention was actually the exact opposite of their impact, right? Of their impact. They, what they were trying to do was to give them a foundation that they can access as life went on. Mm -hmm. right? Tanya is not that important for a five or six or 10-year-old. Right. <laughs> right. Most of it's not understood in that brain, but it's, hey, let's start teaching this. Let's become familiar with this, this um, book. I tell this story often, uh, maybe not publicly, but I tell the story. So when I was in uh, ninth grade, I think it was, I got into a fight with a kid in school and ultimate manipulation. <laughs> he went to the he went to the head of school and said that he's leaving the school and he's no longer going to be religious. And if I remember correctly, his family either wasn't Chabad or wasn't religious, so it was a credible threat. Right. It wasn't like right. He wasn't just fronting. Right. Yeah. It's like I'll go back to the last school I came from. <laughs> so um I was kicked out of school for this fight and I was told I think that I had to learn like the first 12 um, prakim of Tanya by heart. Okay. And we had a teacher who was not, he was a, sec a secular subject. His name was uh, Rabbi Duran, Rabbi Yale Duran. And he said, and hopefully he's comfortable with me sharing the story, but it puts oh. him in a good light. <laughs> and he said, he actually didn't say anything to me, but I heard him yelling at someone in the office, you know, it was a small building and paper thin walls and saying, are you trying to destroy Tanya for him? How dare you? How dare you? Why are you making right. his association with it something, something negative? Right. And I think at the end, uh, the punishment was to learn the content of the 32nd chapter of hmm. um, Tanya instead of learning the first 12 chapters uh, by heart, which, was, which would, would have felt, I mean, to me, 13, 14 years old, would have felt like this meaningless punishment, whereas chapter 32, the content of was, hey, this content can, can yes. help you in how to understand this. Reading words and being forced to memorize them for hours a day before I can return to school just seemed a little bit um, insane. But winding this back to where we started this is that this client who you're talking to knows the Tanya, and that's making them less likely to use the Tanya in the way their parents and educators wanted them too. So can yeah. we speak to this a little bit? I think it's important. Yeah. I mean, this is pretty much what I would categorize under that religious trauma piece is that the way religion was used in my upbringing is wounding and abusive and makes me feel like I'm not allowed to be as much of my a person um, 
And so I then have to, the, my only option is to now reject it and not be able to get close to it because I'm associated it. I've associated it with so much hurt, rejection, control, abuse, on and on. And it's, it's one of the things that is so, it's so interesting to me as from my own experience, because I'll be sitting and I'll hear somebody talking about all the pain Judaism has brought them. And obviously it's not Judaism, but the people who were representing Judaism caused and how now their associate associations with Judaism are so negative. And I'm like, really? Cause that's the thing that like makes me feel light and bright right. and, and I feel so connected to, and it's such a, it's, such a dichotomy and so it's such a trip like it's just trippy uh, to be honest like because i know and it doesn't make sense in a way except for on a spiritual plane that like my i felt so much lightness in it that i must be meant to work with orthodox people to bring some light back i I, that sounds kind of self-aggrandized but i don't mean it that way it's just like how else would this make sense that this this lights me up completely and for this person who's sitting across from me it brings them into complete darkness and brings them into their hole and that I'm able to say the same stuff. I don't mean to be saying the same stuff, but it just so happens that the same principles in which I'm working with them in therapy are the things that are bringing them out of their darkness. And it's really the thing that I see mirrored in, in authentic Judaism. So as a parent, how do you avoid this happening to, to your children? That's such a good question. My, my two-year-old is learning all about Shavuos because we're coming upon that. And um, yesterday, my husband's like, watch this. And he goes to my daughter, what, what was Mount Sinai? What was Mount Sinai? She goes, humble. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yes, so we're learning about humility. And then I had this moment where I'm like, she doesn't know what the heck humble means. She's right. just like literally repeating whatever their song or teaching is that they're learning in their Hebrew education in school right now. Right. Or she's in, she's in turning twos. So I don't know how much of school it is, but in her playtime. Right. And so what I thought of is like, how do I teach her humility at two and a half? And do I? And like, what is that? And then the thing came back to me is like, oh, she's only going to learn it by how I behave with it. Like, she's not going to learn it from anything I verbally teach her. She's going to learn from how I act in a way that might might display humility. And I don't even need to tell her what I'm doing is humility because she's not going to, two-year-old brain is not going to wrap her mind around that yet. And all I have to do is be an example for her. And I think that the way that I wear my Judaism is what she is going to end up feeling about her Judaism. And I think most of the people who hurt someone else about religion are probably pretty hurt with their own religion. And for them, religion was like a tool to to cope with or deal with or heal something that they didn't resolve yet. And so I have to now force it on or hurt somebody else with it because it's the only way I know to deal with whatever is unhealed for me. How do you know that's not going to happen, though, uh, with your with your um, child's teachers, for example? Oh. Meaning, even if you're light with it, because you don't have the religious right. trauma, right? It wasn't right. it wasn't introduced her? to you in that way, right? So you probably won't pass it on in that way right. unless you've taken on some of some of that. But it doesn't seem like it. Mm-hmm. But even with all those precautions, how do you know that it doesn't happen? I don't. There? I don't know that she's not going to get hurt. And this goes across the board, not just with, I mean, I could do my best. Of course, I'm going to research where she goes through school and I'm going to be kind of neurotic about it. And I'm going to be particular about things. And if I hear 
the thing I'll tell you what I can control. The only thing I can control is, is my relationship with her and my side of my relationship right. with her. So if I see or feel or hear something from her that's concerning for me, I'm going to then try to find out the reason for my concerns and try to be on her team. And I think that's where a lot of parents have a hard time is like, how do I, we used to, I think, think of children as like almost less than human. Right. Which, is, so if a kid said something, it was like, would be in a kid. <laughs> Instead of like, oh no, this is a person who might be expressing something important, even if they're expressing it in an immature childlike way. <laughs> right? right. Like, so I, I view her as a person. I respect her. She deserves my respect completely because she's a perfect tiny little human who also sometimes bites her sister, but I still respect her. <laughs> and it, it, because I respect her, I hope that she will feel safe enough to tell me about what's going on. And if she doesn't, I hope that my husband is safe enough for her to tell what's going on. And I think that knowing that I'd have her back no matter what, I won't. My mom had this. She had my back no matter what, but like to a fault sometimes. So like I would do something wrong and she would like defend me to the principal, <laughs> like to a fault. Like you can't say anything bad about my child. And meanwhile, like I was actually like selling drugs. So <laughs> like, yeah, you should, probably should be saying some bad things about me. And I knew, I'm like, I knew that she didn't really know me because I, she didn't know and I was so secretive and I was hiding a lot oh. about what was going on. So she was defending me, but I didn't feel good about it. I felt even worse about it and right. a little bit arrogant. So it fed into my arrogance. You felt of, unseen. Yeah, I can get away with whatever I want because my mom's going to have my back. She's not going to hold me accountable because it threatens her sense of self. And meanwhile, I'm actually doing something wrong and I need and I'm crying for help, but nobody's showing up. Fascinating. So with my child, I'm hoping that like while I will always respect her and build her up and support her in her amazing human qualities, I'm not, I'm also going to be able to hold her accountable when it's reasonable, but that means taking her side when an educator might be saying something that I think is inappropriate. Um, or if I feel like she's being hurt by somebody being able to protect her and eventually teaching her how to protect herself. Like I, that is something that needs to be transferred, but I cannot control if somebody's going to hurt my kid. Right. So let me try this idea on for you and tell me what you think. Yeah. So say like the concept of uh, like the Rebbe had of Shlichus, right, where he sent people out to communities which didn't have a flourishing Jewish community or any Jewish community often and said, you establish one. Right. So it seems to me that some um, view that as, okay, I have his protection and everything's going to work out perfectly mm -hmm. versus this is important enough that it's worth taking certain risks and these are the risks that I'm taking. Right. Right. And it's probably closer to the second, as is evidenced by the many families who've paid a price from that yeah. from that decision. And I mean, if you take Chabad back and you go into Russia and things like that, people were arrested for certain right. positions. And it wasn't uh, people who weren't doing it correctly. The Rebbe's father, I think, spent so long in prison that when the Rebbe saw a picture of him, he said, is this really my father? Wow. So um, meaning people paid a price for certain decisions that were made. Yep. And it wasn't the absence of that price that made the decision meaningful. It was it was valuable enough to to pay the price. Right. And it seems to me like oftentimes there's that approach of everything's gonna work out because we're doing the right thing. And it's like, no, it's not that's not the way it works. So maybe in this case, saying that there's kind of if if the end goal is to have 
a child with a deep connection to Judaism, a deep connection with God, then there's two ways to get there. One is don't touch it so you don't screw it up <laughs> and let them get to it on their own and find that lightness. And, you know, there's, there's nothing that'll get in the way, which was kind of more of your, and you can't say it's not a path because it's your path. It was my path. Yeah. Um, that has its risks yep. because if you don't introduce it, and as is evidence from the fact that very few people make that choice. Right. So it has its, if the goal is, I'm talking, I'm not, I'm not talking about what the goal should be. I'm talking about someone if sitting there the with this goal. If this is your goal, then there are two paths and each has its hazards. Mm -hmm. If you don't touch it at all and don't say anything, then they won't know enough to come back to it. It may be too big of a climb. Right. To, but if we're choosing to, which probably is the most logical outcome, to touch it, understand that when we touch it and we start telling a child about religion in the name of God and we're not 100% clean ourselves, we're guaranteed to screw this up for them a little bit. And there's some unlearning that's going to be important through the process. Yeah. Whether that's going to be 1% of things that need to be cleaned up or as it's been the case for others, including myself, is well over 90% of it had to be flushed out in order for me to be, be able to reconnect a little right. bit. And where I stand today, I'm happy that I have the language, the familiarity. It's much more comfortable for me that as I'm you know, reapproaching Judaism, whether it's Shabbos or learning or stuff like that. I can read Hebrew. I can read Yiddish. I can read Aramaic. Right. I know. I know the different sources. I'm not. I'm not starting from scratch. Good. So that's some of the benefit of it. But I had to unlearn. Unlearn a lot, a lot. Like the religious trauma was deep. Yeah. Um, do you mind me asking? What did you have to unlearn? What do you think was taught to you? I think there was so much heaviness associated with it. Number one. Is light light, meaning <laughs> say like Torah is light, God yeah. is light. Is it also light? Is the yeah. feeling also light? Is darkness heavy? Right. So, so much of it felt so intense and so heavy that I was pushing it away with, um, with both hands. The other was that there was this inherent communication. No one said it outright, but there was this inherent communication that this little bubble that was created that I was raised into every single aspect of it was dictated by the word of God mm -hmm. or the word of Rebbe who had a, you know, or the word of the Rebbe who had a, a direct communication with God. So everything in it, I had to attribute to God. Mm -hmm. And even though they didn't say God said to do this, if anything happened to me, this, the, um, what was communicated on, on some level so many times repeatedly is that this is the way and right. everything we do is instructed by the, right. like the way and when we're not sure we go to a rabbi who is taught the way so anything negative that i felt and experienced i attributed to the way god's way obviously to god so a lot of that was um unlearning that god doesn't want bad for me he's not setting me up to give me a desire that i can't control right contain and only to punish me you know all of that it's interesting because as you're saying this, I'm like, I wonder if that made you, everything being attributed to God, does that make you feel one up or does that make you feel one down? And what I mean in, is in the context of that make me feel better than others or does that make me feel worse than others or both? I think worse than others in my case. Yeah. When you say better than others, are you talking about that? Um, 
like the chosenness aspect that sometimes gets misinterpreted. Yeah, but it's deeper than that. But me and my me and my husband talk about this a lot, like the almost antisocialness that can come from this. We are chosen people. It's not even the chosen people. It's just that Jews, everything is ordained by God, so it's okay to steal from the non-Jewish like grocery store. Like this entitlement aspect that can come with it because Even though of, it's specifically communicated otherwise? Yeah. Like it doesn't say do not steal that from I'm a Jew. I'm above. Right, obviously. Right. Right. Just the the, the inher- separateness, the inherent separateness that everything that we do is ordained by God, so now I can justify. I'm not saying that Judaism says it's right, okay of course to not. do these things. Right, but is there is there some of that? Well, I, I definitely can't deny that um I've experienced that. Right. Right. Meaning I've 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 certainly seen it in others. Whether I can say I for sure saw it in myself, um, I'm not sure. But I certainly saw it in in others. So yeah, there was a part that was communicated of we know better, we are right. Yeah, I can see that. Because that I think that's something that can be really harmful for kids is the use of the one up of a parent. And obviously parents are in a power position over kids. And, but we don't see how our one upping our children is making them one down from us. And so this, like, we are right and we are the answer and everything we do and say is the right thing creates this, like, either then I'm, I'm less than, or I'm better than also. And it's like this weird thing that happens because I I think this is also intergenerational trauma. I don't, I don't know if three or four generations ago we were having this same experience of that one upness to the point of doing behaviors that harmed other people just because they aren't Jewish. No, I think that's probably a defense mechanism that came from the opposite being pushed one down. I agree. I agree. I think it's like the, the, we were so oppressed and so um, treated unfairly that now I'm having the reaction of that. I agree that that comes up. But the desire for a kid to be what I think is right just creates in them the vulnerability to be like that as an adult where everything I do is right. And so I think there's such a bind in the religious trauma because I'm either completely good, I'm the one up, or I'm completely bad, I'm the one down. And that black and whiteness or that 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 separateness of self makes me feel like I'm so split. So I can't be both doing something that might be not ideal and also um, uh, God's favorite person in the world <laughs> at the right. same time. And so I can only be one or the other. So I, I end up, like we were talking about earlier with the client who, or the, the person who you're speaking to, not client, who relapsed and then it just goes goes off the barrel for three right. months. It's because it can't be that I made one little mistake. It has to be that everything is wrong. So I'm either completely right or I'm completely wrong. And my parents are completely right because that's what I was, that's how I was raised with this one-up mentality that everything my parents are doing are right. So I'm either doing that or I'm wrong. Well, I heard someone say this and it resonated deeply with me is that when, when Judaism was communicated to them, it was communicated as in a way of um, perfection is expected, mm-hmm. attainable, reasonable, <laughs> right? Meaning if, if we said to someone, you know, the goal is, to shoot every shot you hit, right? That's what you're trying to do. You're never trying to throw up a shot in basketball that right. doesn't go in. Right. <laughs> <laughs> never once. But the guys who are good, very good, get in one out of every two. And I'm talking the best right. of the best. Right. And even when there's no defenders, they get it in 90% of the time. And that's considered amazing. 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 Right. But with Judaism, there's the um it's the way he was raised, and it resonated with me is that the instruction felt like, yes, obviously every single time 
we're trying to get the basketball in. But if we don't, we fell short in some way. Like in some way, there's this expectation. And I think of it about a lot with um, sex addiction or pornography or masturbation. Most people who reach out to me thinking they're struggling with pornography or masturbation are not struggling with pornography or masturbation. Yeah, what are they struggling with? Shame. Yeah. They're not even, some, many, many are not even using it that often. Right. Right. Oh man. Every few months. So many of that. Yeah. Every few months they, um, let's say they view pornography or not even that every few months they they may masturbate Mm -hmm. and then they feel like their, their world ended. How could I? Yeah. And I think in not wanting to give someone an out and say, it's okay if you fail once in a while thinking that they're going to go off the the deep deep end end if you just give them that pass. (laughs) We've communicated such a perfectionism that I think in some Jewish books, masturbation is considered, right, the sins of our youth. Hmm. And I think that's what, like if that, that term, the sins of our youth, is sort of masturbation, almost the suggestion, the way I hear that is that all of us. All of us do it. All, right. Yeah. All of Every us have done it. Every kid acts like a yes. kid. Every, yes, all of us have done that. It's interesting when you say that. My first thought is like, oh, that's so interesting because in some ways, sex addiction to me is a lack of emotional maturity. Say more. Uh huh. So when you say sins of your youth, I'm like, oh yeah, because it's like an immaturity thing, and not because masturbation's immature. I think everybody has a right to their own definition of what's healthy sexuality for them. What I'm saying is that when we're in our sex addiction, that that we're typically operating from an immature sense of self. That like, I a maturity is boundaries and healthy expression of myself, which is intimacy with another person and using my sexuality in a way that's not harming for myself or other people. Whereas immaturity is, I just need I need whatever I can get to feel good because it's interesting and I'm curious or it's more of that impulsive like teenagers have higher car insurance rates because they're so impulsive because they truly believe nothing bad will happen to them right it's an like, invincibility sin of my youth you know <laughs> like I don't think I don't think that um I think that recovery happens in a mature sense of self because if I'm still am lacking the maturity and I don't mean maturity in a judgmental or like I'm better than you type of way. I mean, maturity in a, in a, I'm able to see myself accurately and have a healthy perception of what, what, where the line is for myself. And I don't need to push it in order to be cool or um, right. that type of stuff. So when you say sins of our youth, I'm like, yeah, maturity. Yeah. I know what you were explaining is that m- masturbation is just a common mistake, just like coloring on the walls. Yeah. But yeah, a mistake or not a mistake. I think that like this idea that it's a sin is not the same. It's okay. You missed the shot in basketball. Right. Okay. No one's going to say it was, I mean, that's a different part, but no one reading Judaism is going to say that it's good. Right. But if we're being honest, the struggle with it is human. Yeah. It's yeah. Most people have. And it should be a struggle because of how important sex, sex and sexuality are. Correct. Like it's not, the struggle is not because it's bad. And I think that's also a message that a lot of people that I work with have is that I'm struggling with something because I'm bad. And that's the shame aspect that you're talking about. Like I've had clients come to me thinking they're sex addicts because they notice attractive women on the street. It's heartbreaking. Like, and I, and I'm like, you are not a sex addict. I promise, unless we, unless I'm missing a behavior or you're lying to me, the fact that you notice a woman is attractive just makes you a human. 
Yeah, what do you want to happen when you get married? Right. You need to right. notice and attract and, <laughs> right. and... And feel that. Exactly. And I have this a lot because I'm obviously a female, right? And I work with male clients and I can see the shame on them if they notice or, or like find, have a moment. I'm very warm. I'm nurturing. They're going to have moments of attraction with me. And I'm aware of that. And I don't... That doesn't freak me out because it's human. And But I'll see the shame wash over them. And I'm like, oh, no. I'm like, oh, don't do that to yourself. Like <laughs> you weren't doing anything wrong. And like we have a conversation about it. And and it's such a painful thing to me because the the only way out of shame is talking about it. And if there's nobody safe to talk about it, what do you do with the shame? It's just gonna yeah, you turn and it on, feed, on yourself. turn it in yourself. And so then of course you're gonna do things that validate the shame and it's uh, Yeah, oftentimes the exact thing that got you there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. How did we get here? That's a good question. We were talking about uh, religious trauma and Judaism and one up versus one down oh. because of you growing up being taught that God is everything. Right. Yeah, different aspects of it. Yeah. I mean, John Bradshaw says that shame is thinking we're more than human or less than human, yep. which is kind of the same idea. It's going to send us in one or the other yep. direction. Yeah. I think that if we're, we're talking about the third thing that I see a lot of clients coming in and mm -hmm. dealing with is this this idea of that all or nothing the split which and that shame component that's going on just this deep sense that there's something that i'm going to do say or be in the world that will prove that i am unlovable and i'm not deserving of love so i either have to manipulate to get my needs met and maybe we see that with the external validation thing or or that right everything we're speaking about is connected it's all shame and i say this like my my clients that i've worked with for a long time i'm like here we go again. Okay, it's shame. <laughs> and, you know, like I tell them, like, you're going to hear the same thing that I'm saying over and over. It sounds like you're feeling ashamed of yourself. I don't, and they'll, they'll say, like, because we have good rapport, they'll be like, I don't hear the shame. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, right. Okay, let's break it down. Mm -hmm. You know, because it's such a deep sense that we don't always notice that we're doing it to ourselves. That, like, that feeling, unless we're really tuned into it, we're not always going to catch when we're feeling like, we're unlovable or we're not worth connection or those types of things. And human as humans, we're innately vulnerable. And like Brene Brown talks about this in one of her workshops that, um, you know, like w the definition of weakness is being, being open to attack. And the definition of vulnerability is knowing where we are weak. So, okay. It's not vulnerability is the awareness of the spots in which we're vulnerable to attack. Right. And we're all vulnerable to attack. It's it's that the vulnerability is, is that I'm responsible for my areas where I feel attacked in. And so I need to know them in order to be able to function in relationship with other people. And it's not a bad thing to be vulnerable. It's just I'm able to tell somebody else where I'm where I feel like you might be able to hurt me. And the idea I think a lot of people associate vulnerability with weakness. I'm weak. And I can admit that I'm scared and everybody else seems to be doing it well. And so like I have to keep up this perfectionism, I think, increases that and or this facade or this distance from other people in order to not be seen for my weakness or my my lack of worthiness as a person. When really those are the things that make us the human. most human and vulnerable right. and vulnerability is where we connect, obviously. Um, I mean, well, for me, obviously. Yeah, it's very difficult to connect with someone who's perfect. Yeah. Which I used to be that. I was very much a perfectionist. So I can relate to that. Like I know like I have the tendency to want to protect myself from from things that I'm scared of because of my feeling that like somehow somebody's going to see that I'm 
fucking it all up you know <laughs> like but that's a shame-based behavior for sure it's 100%. shame yeah. and and that's and we're never not going to have shame never not we're always going to have shame it's we a human it. feeling yeah we want it. we want to have shame it's important it's survival mechanism if i didn't feel shamed and i use this antidote a lot if i'm if i have shame and i'm walking down the street and i throw something on the ground then i'm gonna try to run away from it as quickly as possible because i don't want anybody to see that i littered and the piece of trash stays on the ground if I have guilt, which can be a healthy emotion, Bradshaw talks about guilt mm -hmm. is healthy or toxic shame versus yeah, yeah. healthy shame. Right, exactly. Healthy shame. And if I, if I litter and I feel guilty, I'm going to say, oh, I don't like that I did that. Let me go pick it up and put it in the trash. And now there's less trash on the ground. And now there's less trash on the ground. And it's not, it's not something so terrible about me. I don't need to run from it. Shame leaves a lot of, un, a lot of trash <laughs> that we're trying to run away from and hope people don't see when if we just took took ownership of the trash on the ground we can then clean it up and feel better about ourselves as a person so shame takes away our ability to heal by keeping us feeling like we need to run from the things that we're ashamed of and so the the healing thing that i see a lot of like the shame resilience work that i do with clients is all about just sitting with the feeling of discomfort of the truth facing it yeah with another human who's not going i'm that's the nice thing about being a therapist is i'm i'm literally here just to be a loving nurturing space i'll hold you accountable if it's really something but like the the core of my work is to be the space in which you are your most complete self and nurtured and loved and cared for in that that's the part of my purpose i feel like and so if somebody's expressing that, I feel like it's the most honorable moment in the world. Like I, it's such a huge honor when somebody shares their shame with me because I like get to be witness to the most human parts of them. Right. And that's beautiful. And that's I don't awesome. think most people are treated like it's beautiful when you're telling me your shameful, dirty secrets. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, so because if that person is feeling a lot of shame around the same thing, they're going to project yeah. their shame back on you. And we get scared. We yeah. get scared of people's vulnerability. With good reason. Yeah. With good reason. Yeah. You know, it's not... By the time I spoke about my story publicly of uh, porn addiction, sex addiction, I wasn't, I wasn't at the same risk level that I was the first time I spoke about right. it privately in the same safe space. Right. right. I'm sure if I got you know, thousands of negative comments about it, it would have affected me. But by the time I spoke about it, I was prepared for some misunderstanding and I was okay with it yeah. because I had shared it with individuals, um, you know, one-on-one -on -one and then smaller groups and then eventually got to that well i think this is where if i know my truth and i'm comfortable with my own truth nobody else can say anything harmful against me if if i'm really secure with that sense of self like we were talking about then of course there's impact by others and we have empathy and compassion but like our truth nobody else can use against us so if i'm sharing something that I feel solid in myself around then there's no risk in sharing it even if it's reacted to negatively um, because the the truth is typically the connective pieces. You know, um, step five in the 12 steps reads, admit it to God, to ourselves, and another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Mm -hmm. So uh, the way I've understood that is it's actually telling you how to do each one. The goal is to admit it to God. But how do we know if we admitted something to God? If we admit it to ourselves. But how do we know if we admitted something to ourselves? If we admitted something to another human being. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. That's, um, uh, can I ask you a question? Yes. How does your wife feel about you talking about sex addiction? Because <laughs> I had, this was one of the reactions that I got, that I had quite a few spouses of sex addicts that were like, how does she deal with that? <laughs> how does she deal with the fact that I'm public about my yes. sex addiction? So she is the, 
reason that um, I am proud of it. Okay, what do I mean by proud of it? So what I mean by it is that what's unique about me? Not that I have a sex addiction. That's not what you mean. Right. What's unique is that I'm fighting back against the sex addiction. People in meetings, people in recovery, what's unique about them is not that they're alcoholics or drug addicts. There are many alcoholics and drug addicts. Right. What's unique is that they're fighting back, is that they're doing something. And the one story that comes to mind with my wife, but this is more indicative of the way she, she dealt with it, is she, she was out to dinner once. I wasn't with her. And when she came back, she said, you know, I hope it's okay that I shared that you're in recovery. So this is obviously before I was public right. about it. And I said, yeah, sure. It's like, it's your story too. So she's like, no, I don't mean it. Like I shared it as my struggle. She said, I was, we're with a couple and or I think it was just, just uh, girlfriends actually. And she was saying that her husband cheated on her. Mm. So she shared my story or our story but more with pride that I was in recovery. And the way she shared it was in that way, that I'm so proud that my husband goes to recovery and he's, I, I feel even safer with him than I think the average woman feels with um, their man who's not a sex addict. Because every man could, could cheat. Right. Okay, I had a stronger compulsion, compulsion than most, so I had to put more barriers in order for that not to happen. But today, she feels safer. That's the way she felt, that she feels safer with me, a sex addict, than yeah. the average woman would feel. So when she described that as a source of pride for her, right. that's some of what gave me the the courage to say, okay, you know, it's if it's a source of pride for her, then why can't it be a source of pride for right. me as well? So um in some ways I'm not projecting my pride, I'm projecting hers by uh, by speaking. I don't think you can speak for her, but out of curiosity's sake, how did she get there? Because I know what I see for a lot of the clients that I'm working with who have a spouse who's in recovery, it feels very much like shameful for them that their partner treated them in such such hurtful ways and they're now standing by them. Like they're in that process. It, that's obviously part of trauma recovery of the partner trauma. But how did she get to a place if you don't mind sharing or if you feel like you have yeah. the right to share? Yeah, I could. I can share some of what she said. Obviously, it would be in some ways more appropriate for her to be sitting here and answering the questions, but I'll, being that she's not, I'll do my best to share it. So first of all, before I answer it, I'm not, if someone isn't there yet, no shame. Right, <laughs> obviously. Not. No, I, yeah. I think that's a, that's a necessary part of the process because it's that same thing. It's correct. It, wounding that innocent part of myself that trusted you and now I feel bad about me because I trusted you. It's, it's part of the process of healing that this isn't about me. And But anyway. Correct. So I think that you know, let's say it this way, someone who's watched porn, for example, their wife may have incredible shame over the fact that their husband is a porn addict. Someone else may say, um, I'm not okay with it, but it was only porn. If it was an actual real person, I would never be able to handle that. Right. So my wife has her version of that, even though with me was actual real people, it wasn't um, emotional. Mm-hmm. It was more transactional, right? Transactional sex. It was also before we were married. It was when we were dating. So these things she's explained as reasons why she wasn't able to take it so personally. No judgment for anyone else who is, no, right? But I think that's the crux. The crux of it is that she was able to separate me from my behavior and my actions from her, right? So she didn't see it as 
I am doing this out of disrespect for her. What she's repeated many times is that she understood that this was my expression of pain and not personal to her. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard thing for someone to get to. It's very difficult. I've been blessed yeah. by the fact that she she has that perspective because it was it, it is true. It was not about her. It's unfortunate that my drug of choice was sex, but for someone else, their drug of choice is alcohol. Right. Does someone feel cheated on? Maybe they feel lied to if the person said that, but it doesn't have that same impact as, I can't believe you were with alcohol over me. Right. <laughs> right? So sometimes uh, for a spouse, that's a very difficult separation to make. I can't believe you were with alcohol over me will sound exactly the same as I can't believe you were another, like, another person, another person over, over me. me. They understand that. I wasn't looking for what I'm looking for from my wife in that. Right. No, you were probably looking for the opposite. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> of what you would be looking 100%. for. hundred percent. I was looking for sex devoid of intimacy. One of the ways I knew that I had a, a problem was I was addicted to massage parlors a little bit and I came into one and the same person walked in the room that I had already known from a couple months before. And that felt too intimate for me. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, I gotta switch this up. I know this person, I know their name. That's what a little knowledge was. So of course, if I'm running to um, a sexual experience that's so devoid of intimacy, of course I'm not gonna be able to get that with someone that I'm dating and knows me well. Right. If someone's name and seeing them one time triggers me. That was one of the things that made me realize like, oh, I got a problem. This is pretty serious. I went to a therapist. I'm like, I'm kind of effed up, I think. <laughs> I, think I think something's wrong with me. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So. It's interesting. Me and my husband were actually, my husband's in recovery. He doesn't, I hope he doesn't mind me sharing it, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't mind. He's very open about it. So we're both people in recovery. So we have a lot of conversations that are probably more um, intimate maybe than right. the couple who's not. And one of the things that we were talking about was the idea of like, what's, and this is a common concept of like, what's more painful, quote unquote, more painful for a man versus a woman in cheating. And that for a woman, a man having an emotional affair with another woman could, or, or same sex, whatever, an emotional yeah. affair is more wounding for women. Whereas a, a, a physical or sexual affair would be more wounding for a man. And why is that? And we like tease, we had like an hour long conversation on this. And it was so interesting because what, what I think it really comes down to is what's my primary need biologically. And I'm always thinking about the brain science of it, right? It's just, it's, it's brain science that women are wired to see relationships in a different way than men are wired to see relationship. If you have a small child who's playing, it's a boy and a girl, the boy's going to be very independent play and the girl's going to try to do collaborative play. Now this isn't a hundred percent of the time and there are variability and everybody's different, but typically that's, that's the common thing that we see because of testosterone. It shuts down a portion of the brain that wires you to notice relationship in the same way as a female. Fascinating. So this is where, so my primary thing that I'm looking for as a female who identifies female, who biologically is female, is relationship. So any threat to that is going to feel like a threat to my survival. Whereas for men, it's a lot more about the act of, of ownership or achievement or conquering, because that's one of those testosterone-based things, is, is the, the completion of the task, the signing of the contract. So this idea of being physical, you are now committing a, an, a more... Um, what's the word, like actual act 
with somebody else rather than just this idea of relationship you're you're putting in stone and act with somebody else and that's very real and committed and that feels wounding it's also a threat to like this is mine that per- even though right. obviously marriage is not about ownership and relationships not about ownership men are more wired for this is mine and that's yours and we don't mix <laughs> because so you're saying this as fact though that women are i'm not disagreeing with it i'm just mm-hmm. asking that women are more sensitive to emotional um cheating yeah and men are more sensitive to physical cheating. to physical cheating well it matches certainly what my wife said and us in terms of me, I don't know that I want to imagine that, but <laughs> <laughs> my husband had to sit with it because we were right. talking about this and he sat with it and he sat with it for a couple minutes. He's like, yeah, if somebody touched you, I would, I don't, I don't know. Nope. Uh, and he like, I could see him glitching like from the, even the idea of it because it would be so painful to him to think of that. And, and I think this, this goes into like the, the idea of treat, treating sex and love addiction in a coupleship, we have to be so aware of the different like wounding for both of the couples. So that's where when you're speaking about it openly, I'm like, how your wife must be in such a healthy place because there's so many fine, like fine tuned minutia going on for her in her own recovery that your addiction could play a part in because men and women are just so complex in their wiring. Um, so right, like, she didn't actually, she didn't access this perspective, which I believe is a true perspective. Right, a compassionate perspective is not lying. It's actually no. just seeing more truth. Yeah. And the truth was, yes, that I was doing behaviors. Yes, I was betraying her. What was also true was that it wasn't personal right. about her. It was about my own process, and I could have just as easily been running to drugs or gambling than to sex. Right. But that didn't do it for me. Right. Um, she didn't. Her path has not been a twelve-step recovery or any of that. Mm-hmm. She didn't. She didn't identify that way. It wasn't even like I'm the spouse of a sex addict and therefore right. i need to go to sex addict recovery it was just this was a perspective that i think took some work to access but it didn't take years of work right it took just like kind of a, a mature healthy understanding and what she said was that you know i knew it wasn't you right which i almost felt and i've, I've shared with um others probably on this podcast that i almost feel like that's the role of um that women can play for for men is because all men are kind of animals. Yeah. We're just like survival based. <laughs> and it's then a testosterone thing. Like I was talking about, it's that conquering mentality. You're very, it's very, very linear in your thinking. Yeah. Right. And for a woman to be able to look at a man and say, like, I see you acting like an animal. I see you behaving, but you're not, you're truly a, an right. angel. Right. You just don't see it yet. And then help them kind of move to that place. I feel like that's what my wife did for me. It was, as many times as I did it, and sometimes I was trying to, like, no, this is me. Like, when I'm... Yeah. Right, I'm a terrible you know, piece of shit. Don't right. help me. Yeah. It's like, no, that's not, that's not you. That's not right. who you are. It's what you're doing, but it's not, it's not who you are. I see right. more. Right. And that's the true you. And I think that if a woman can offer that to a man, oftentimes she can help. But that's part of the intimacy right. avoidance, is I'm so afraid that you see me as lovable as I am that I don't want to let too close because then what? Like when right. you're describing it, like the almost like not wanting to agree with her perspective of like I see the true you. I think that's, I see a lot of clients get really scared when they're seen authentically because it's like if you see me, then you might hurt me the way somebody else who was supposed to protect me hurt me or somebody else who was supposedly cared about me hurt me. And and that 
in recovery that the true intimacy that can come is beautiful because we're actually going to let somebody treat us the way we always deserve to be treated. You always deserve to be seen as a lovable whole person. Now, our spouse can get mad at us, obviously, and that doesn't mean we're unlovable, but it's, it's the essence of holding space for another person's humanity. And while I think that men and women are extremely different, the ways that they're different are small. Like, like if, if we're the same as humans in like 80%, the 20% that were different were extremely different. So it's so easy right. to say men and women are so different, but the 80% that were the same is, is that's the core truth. And that's the connection point of intimacy is, is where are we the same as humans and how do we admire, respect, and overcome the differences to create something bigger than us? Okay. I feel like this is a larger conversation anytime you go into male, female yeah. <laughs> um, dynamics. But one thing my sponsor told me, which uh, was very important for me early recovery is he said, you know, a sex addiction is not a sexual problem. It's an intimacy disorder. Yep. And focusing on the intimacy aspect of it is much easier, I think, for people to to view that. What I was running f- towards was not sexuality. I was right. running away from intimacy. That right. was the truth. Yeah, Ken Adams talks about this when he's teaching about sex addiction is that the recovery isn't about avoiding the the act of act, the acting out or the sexual compulsivity or the love addiction which is actually intimacy avoidant or intensity addiction it's it's about finding your true north and the true north is always love and so what is most loving and i think that comes down to another like central concept that that i see in therapy is like redefining what love actually is and what does it mean and the felt sense of it and that idea of self-compassion really is self-love and how do I love another person? How do I love myself? How do I experience love? Because it's such a big, powerful emotion without trying to avoid it or feel scared by it or feel engulfed by it, you know, and like right. still be a functional human while being in a loving place. So recovery is about moving towards the true north of love. Um, right. And not to put too much on a spouse, um, because ultimately it is the responsibility of the addict to get healthy, but there are ways we can help and ways that we can hurt for sure when we're closest to someone. And I'm thinking of someone who um, I came into recovery, sex addiction recovery around the same time as he did, but we came in different ways. Mm -hmm. I came because I was in a relationship and I wasn't able to, um, you know, maintain a level of honesty that I wanted. And he came because he was in Alcoholics Anonymous and his sponsor pointed out that there's also a sex addiction going on. So he started working on that. But we we're there at the same time. And he got into a relationship after that. And his spouse was very clear. I'm cool with AA. I'm not cool with the sex addiction Uh-oh. problem. <laughs> and she just, she wasn't okay with it. She wasn't okay with him going to those meetings, telling anyone about it. And he was very proud of his um, AA recovery. He would talk about how long he... He wasn't, um, you know, how long he hadn't drank. And it was like, he would tell you right at the beginning of the meal, hey, I don't drink alcohol. I'm sober for a year year and a half. But the porn addiction and the sex addiction was, he was already struggling with the shame, obviously. That's why he was there. And his eventual wife added a level of shame on top of it. Yeah, that's hard. And... I'm not 100% sure, but I'm 100% sure. He's still struggling with it today. I don't know him. I don't I don't know him yep. today. Yeah. But I'm fairly certain. He's probably still struggling. Still, still struggling with it. And I think that, yes, it's his responsibility, and he has to overcome it mm-hmm. and everything else. But 
if I had his wife and he had my wife, he may be sitting here and I'm be, I may be watching porn tonight. And that's, I think this is something that's so important in the couple's recovery that I work on with people is that your partner is literally the key to all of your best healing. We, we, we the Torah don't, believes that. Yeah, Torah <laughs> believes that also. Cool. Yeah. See, this is the nice thing about like being a convert is I don't automatically think about Torah. No. <laughs> I always say like, I, I'm so not a rabbi. I've, I learned a lot. I, I don't feel insecure about my Judaism learning, but I am not able to quote or bring up concepts to support my stuff. Right. That oh, whole thing. I, I wish I was, but not there. Um, not yet. And so, but the idea that my, my spouse is the key to my best best self and my most healing. And the reason why that is, is because I pick the person who's going to push all of the unhealed things on, for me. So if I want, I, if you want to heal, get in a relationship is what I tell my single people who are like in recovery and they're like, Oh no, I don't know. Do I want to date? I'm like, do you, are you committed to your healing? You know, <laughs> right, <laughs> like, that's gonna... like not that we should use our partners in order to heal. They're not an object, they're a person, but it will bring up all of our unhealed stuff and, and it'll make us face how much I'm willing to surrender and trust another human being and how good my boundaries are and where my self-worth is. And, and this is something I always talk about with dating is like in the beginning of dating and my husband actually taught me this, I'll give him credit right. for it, even though I use it all the time is in dating the idea is to find out if this a person is that a person that i want to be with and the way i phrase that he didn't use this wording because he's much more straight to the point than i am mm. i say the wording of has is this a person who's earned the right to know this about me and be intimate with me and be close to me in the most spiritual and connective way did they earn the right to do this and so during dating it's looking at what does what qualities does this person have to earn the right to be so close to me and then when you get into marriage, it's what can I do to earn the right for this person to now show me their most vulnerable parts? And I think that's a very idealistic concept, obviously. Not every person achieves that. Well, that's why that. marriages are a long time. <laughs> exactly. We have a long time yeah. to mess it up and fix it. I always say like in fights, you know, there's, there's a road. I can either go down the road that burns the whole house down or I can go down the road mm. that makes everything better. And, and we have that power in relationship with a spouse and if we're if we're being intentional in our relationship, we we are the key to the healing because I'm looking at what can I do that's in the best interest of my spouse. Because in a healthy relationship, this is not in not in dysfunctional or toxic or codependent relationships or addictive relationships where there's active addiction, but in a healthy relationship, my partner has my best interest in mind, and they they are able to connect with the fact that they care about me and more than anyone in the world. And I'm able to hold the fact that I matter to them in such a deep way that it's safe for me to be me and it's safe for them to be them. And mm. so when my husband chooses his mouth open, I don't want to kill him for it, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> I have his best interest in mind. But it makes the little annoyances, which he's the one who gets bothered by that, not me. I found out I slurped my soup after I got married. I never knew I slurped <laughs> my soup. Never, no idea until I got married. And um, but those little things don't become so negative or resentful or, or ugh, about my partner because I'm holding in the true essence of the relationship, which is that you are my greatest path towards healing and wholeness in the world. Um, is again, it Bob Marley who said, the truth is that everyone's going to hurt you. You just got to find the ones worth suffering for. Yep. Yep. And it is it's an extremely painful area, as the NA Big Book says. It's the only thing it says. Are... It says relationships are an extremely painful area. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's there's because how, what more can you say? It's very painful. But this goes back to the idea you were talking about earlier, which is is life meant to be devoid of adversity? 
like you were talking about with Judaism, do I go hands off and I don't tell them anything or do I try to interact with them about Judaism and maybe mess it up? And I think that you were talking about something that I hear more as a metaphor for life is like, do I not interact with life and hope that I get out scot-free and everything will be okay if I do the right thing, maybe everything will work out and I don't want to interact with life or do, or am I willing to get into the murky or the suffering or the painful areas with the knowing that it, it will then elevate into the light. And that is, that's something I see often with clients is there's no, there's no darkness that we go to that I'm afraid to go to with them because there is no darkness in me that I have fear of. And that's a, I think that's a bold statement to make, but it's honest for me. I used to be extremely terrified of myself and my feelings and what I was capable of as a person. I'll get really emotional because it was such a dark time. I, I really did not like who I was. And I thought that there was something deeply wrong and, and, and deeply unlovable about me. And that was so scary to feel and so scary to be in my own body. And now that I'm not afraid of my own darkness, there's nobody else's darkness that I'm truly afraid of, obviously within reason, right. but, <laughs> but most of my clients are coming to me with this darkness that they are fearful of. And right. the, the true light is being in it with them and not being afraid of it. So going into the adversity rather than avoiding it in order to heal. Amen. Yeah, I think that that speaks to why it's so important for those in the healing space to do their own healing. And that's a continuous um, continuous process. Yeah, I'm not dead yeah. yet. <laughs> right. And I don't, I don't even think that that's, like, let's assume that one can get completely healed today. Like, in this moment, they're completely healed. Yeah, I'd buy it. By the time they walk outside, <laughs> something will yeah, happen. Right, right. right. Hey, here comes new stuff to deal exactly. with. Exactly. I could walk outside right now, and is it raining? No, it's just it's mm. dark outside. It could be raining, and now my, you know, whatever, my hair's getting wet. And that's friction. Like, the world is right. full of friction. I can never avoid the friction of life, and I'm not meant to avoid it. And the friction causes discomfort, and the discomfort that I learned to tolerate trains me to be an acceptance of all the good, even when it's bad. I mean, it's, again, this is like high level spiritual stuff because I think most people, when they face an adverse experience, it feels like just another piece on the, on the weight of the world that they're already carrying. A punishment. Yeah. Yeah. God made it rain. <laughs> um, I must have done something. Wrong. I must have done something wrong instead of God made it rain because he cares about the earth and right. everyone in it. I think the Rebbe says this, he talks about punishments and that a punishment like has to be connected to the offense. In other words, mm. even using the word punishment sounds so arbitrary. It has to be a natural consequence. It's the only way to that's what the way I understood it yep. when I when I read it is that to suggest that God can't figure out how to program the world into negative action negative consequence, positive action, positive consequence, and needed to arbitrarily decide at random <laughs> who, who gets what. It just doesn't make any sense. Tell right. any sex addict that there needs to be, any drug addict, that there's some sort of punishment for taking their drug. There's, there's no punishment. Yeah. There's no punishment. And the, regardless of the punishment, this is more important than any punishment I could ever feel. Yeah, nothing like, matches up. What are you going yeah. to do to me that's worse? Right. Tell me, please. Right. There's not... To feel worse than I feel right now, what happens realistically is that it kind of decays us over time and we become so desensitized to what's actually going on that we don't notice it. Right. But once it's unwound 
And it's like, holy shit, what was I, what was this addiction doing to right. me? And it wasn't God coming down and saying, oh, too much masturbation. Let me smite you <laughs> on the head. Yeah. No, literally the consequence <laughs> you want to, you want to do it that much. You're going to feel the natural consequences of those things. You know, something you said earlier about, um, husband and wife, like being the perfect help for each other. Does the name Heidi Schleifer mean anything oh, to you? Oh, I love Heidi <laughs> Schleifer. Yes, she actually, in a big way, formed my opinion of how to treat couples because okay. I was a big Harville Hendricks and Mago person, mm -hmm. and she trained my supervisor and and who trained me, and I've attended her stuff, read her stuff. She's amazing. Cool. Yeah, yeah so Heidi I've, and your me are great. Is right. she still practicing? She's still practicing. Yumi passed away. A little Gosh. bit ago. Okay. Um, she's starting to practice, I think, only virtually. Like She stopped, yeah. and now she started up again uh, virtually. So my wife and I went to twice over the years, once before we got engaged and once just before COVID, beginning of 2020, to a, her two-day intensive. Yep. I've also been to a few of her um, workshops. Yep. In an early podcast, I recorded, uh, it was a conversation with myself, Haiti, and Robbie Simon Jacobson. The three of us um, had a conversation. I don't know if so her... Cool. True beauty was showcased in that conversation. In hindsight, I wish that I, I had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with her, and you know, maybe one day in person, uh, we'll do that. She's obviously she's older half now. The year, isn't she? I'm not sure. She used to I think she used to be yeah. her time. In any case, the reason I brought it up is because you know when we did the intensive with her, my wife and I. So she repeated often that like she doesn't, she will not work with a client one-on-one, -on -one because she believes like she's interfering mm -hmm. with who the person they should be getting their healing from is. So obviously this yeah. is a very, like in order to do what she does, it's very difficult yeah. to sit there but not be there yeah. and have couples learn. And that's why she does it as a two-day intensive yeah. and not an hour a week here or there, is to get to that place where she can have a couple kind of heal each other yeah. versus the therapist healing which it's idealistic. The message is there, not challenging anyone yourself or anyone else who's not doing it that way. I don't feel so but challenged. The, right. But the point is there. The point is there. You know why I don't feel challenged is because any client that I have who's in a marriage, I'm always working towards taking whatever they're learning in therapy and applying it in the real world in their marriage. Like I, because it's only, and I think I've said this here last time that like the therapeutic relationship is inherently intimacy deficit because I'm not, a, I don't need them, I, ideally. I mean, if I'm healthy, right? I don't need my clients in order to take care of me emotionally. There's no back and forth interaction. It's all me giving um, to what their needs are in that in that session. And so that's not that's not real life. But they get to heal and learn in that space of how to show up differently in the real life interactions or and then hopefully prepare them for and prepare for, for how to actually be getting what they actually need from their partner but maybe similar to what we were saying earlier about the two paths one can take their children on to get to the destination of religion is recognize not religion but a connection to judaism and yeah. god is the recognition that every path comes with some negativity attached yep. to it and maybe that's true as well is that yeah. anytime one spouse has to go to someone else for healing Yes, it may be better than the alternative, but there's something that's attaching itself to this process yeah. that's suboptimal that will eventually need to be um, need to be worked out. I think especially with intimacy disorders, that if it's not getting healed in the primary relationship, it's avoiding the biggest piece of the healing. I, I agree with that completely.
Right. Maybe at some level, everything is an intimacy disorder. Ah, that's, a, <laughs> that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> right, that's discussion. all other podcast. Right. Mm. All right. Did we, um, did we cover everything? I think. I think so. Did I we feel, cover everything? I feel good. Not everything in the world, but I feel like what we uh, <laughs> intended to, the original intention of this discussion, at least from my perspective, I feel has been um, executed on. Do you feel the same way? I feel the same way, yeah. Okay. So thank you so much for uh, joining us again. Yeah. Looking forward to have a great one. Thank you.